If you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. We've been looking at Matthew's gospel since August when I started here as your pastor, and this is the last sermon in Matthew. Uh, We'll be moving on later in the spring to the book of Habakkuk and then uh, to Psalms and Ephesians later in the fall. There's a lot coming, Uh, but this is the end of Matthew's gospel, and we are ending uh, in a fitting place on a fitting day. And while you're turning to Matthew chapter 28, I want you to try, if you can, to put yourselves in the shoes of Christ's disciples. Think about what has happened to them, even in the seven days prior to this story we're about to read. In the last week, Jesus entered into Jerusalem. We talked about this last Sunday. He was riding a donkey, but the entire city got stirred up thinking that their king had come. Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he went immediately to one place, the temple, where he drove out those that were buying and selling and lending money. And then he spent a week debating the religious leaders and teaching his disciples. On Thursday of that same week, Jesus gathered for what his disciples now suspected was their last meal with him. Jesus instituted there the Lord's Supper. And then after that that meal together, he was betrayed and arrested and thrown into a kangaroo court, a sham of a trial. On Friday, he was condemned. He was beaten. He was crucified. A cruel and terrible way to die. He died and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. How do you think the disciples are feeling at this moment? They thought this was it. This was the moment they were waiting for. Jesus coming to Jerusalem and now their friend and their master and the man they thought was going to restore Israel to greatness is dead. The hope of the nations feels like it is past. That's where our passage opens this morning. This is Matthew 28. I'm going to read the entire chapter. This is God's word for us this morning. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! 
And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. And ask God to help us understand this passage. Father, we thank you for a story that is too glorious to understand on a first reading or a second reading or a thousand readings. Uh, Father, we thank you that you've given us your word that bears witness to the truth of what you have done in Christ. And we pray this morning that you would send the Holy Spirit to us. That you would give us understanding. That you would give us joy. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our passage opens in verse 1. It's Sunday morning, first day of the week, the third day since Jesus has died. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, we'll call them the Marys, go and visit the tomb. They are going to wash and uh, anoint the body of Jesus. But before they get to the tomb, something happens. Verses 2 to 4 tell us what it is, and that is an angel has arrived from heaven. He brings a message from God, and there is an earthquake, and the tomb is opened, the stone is rolled back, and the angel sits on it. The Roman soldiers who were battle-hardened faint. The women were okay. Verses 5 to 7 tell us what this angel relates to the Marys. He says, don't be afraid. I know that you are seeking Jesus who was crucified, but he's not here, for he is risen. Look, you can see where he was laying. Go and tell his disciples that he is headed to Galilee. The Marys are, as you might imagine, overwhelmed by this news. And verse 8 tells us that they depart the tomb with fear and joy and they run to meet the disciples. But before they can even leave the garden, verse 9 tells us that Jesus appears to them. And he says, greetings, And they see him and immediately recognize him and fall and grab his feet and begin to worship him. 
And Jesus says to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my disciples to meet me in Galilee. It's really amazing that women are the first witnesses of Christ's resurrection. In the ancient world, in some legal cases, women's testimony was not even admissible in court as evidence. And yet the Lord Jesus entrusts the news of his resurrection to women because he loves and cares for the women who follow him. Friends, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, this story is familiar to you. You're not surprised by the news of the resurrection. It's familiar, but what I want you to see this morning is it is still unprecedented. What is happening here is a man who was dead is now alive. This doesn't happen, right? Have any of you ever experienced this? No. This is unprecedented. It's surprising. It is amazing. One theologian says the resurrection is the single best page of the entire story. Because, friends, if Jesus is resurrected from the dead, that means... Death is not the end of our story because death is not even final. The great poet and pastor George Herbert once said, Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. Isn't that beautiful? Death for us in Christ is not the end. Death plants us in the ground until we bloom in resurrection glory too beautiful to even imagine. C.S. Lewis said that if you could catch a glimpse of your body and its resurrected glory, you would be tempted to worship yourself. Friends, that is the end of your story in Christ. Everything is different. As the great theologian Johnny Cash so accurately captured it, Ain't no grave can hold my body down. So everything's different. But how does this affect your daily life? How does this affect your day-to-day, the things you are just going through normally as you go about your lives? When I was growing up, there was a season where my parents were singing in the church choir. And because they were singing in the church choir on Wednesday nights, they needed some regular child care for my brother and I. We were middle elementary school, so I was probably in third grade. He might have been in first grade um, or maybe fourth and second. It was somewhere in that range. And since we were going to be spending some extended time with the grandparents, my grandfather, who was an amazing man, Uh, He was a fighter pilot, he flew F-86s and F-100s, he was an engineer, he worked in R&D for the Air Force, 
Uh, he had a boat building business for a while. He just, he could do anything. He decided we needed to have a project that we would work on together. And so he decided that my younger brother and I were going to build alongside him a remote controlled sailboat. We worked on this sailboat for months. The hull was made of fiberglass, so we learned how to make molds, and we sanded, and we built the layers of the fiberglass, and we uh, painted everything, and he taught us how to sew the sail, and showed us how to mount the motor in the sailboat, and we worked on this thing. It was probably six months in the making, and finally, we finished it. We finished this beautiful sailboat. It probably stood you know, this high off the ground. It was huge. It was awesome. And the day came for us to go and test the sailboat. It was a Sunday afternoon. It was a beautiful day, not unlike today. And we went to a little lake in Asheville, North Carolina called Lake Julian. It's a power plant lake in South Asheville. And we got there and we put the boat in the water, and it started going out to the middle of the lake, and it was amazing. It did exactly what we thought it was going to do. And it got about halfway out to the lake, you know, just far enough that you couldn't, like, get to it. And it started kind of leaning to the side. And it kept leaning, and we realized this is not a feature. Like, this is, so there's a problem here with, with our sailboat. And it starts to sink. And it's going down. And my grandfather is panicked. And you got to understand, my grandfather was a, was a sober man. He was a serious guy. He was a wonderful grandfather, but he was very sort of dignified. I never saw him really rush to do anything. A Presbyterian elder for 20-something years, you can imagine. You know the type. <laughs> so my grandfather runs down to the ranger stand. And he's going to try to see if he can borrow a canoe, but it's Sunday, and rangers don't work on Sunday at Lake Julian. So my grandfather, the Presbyterian elder who is godly, who never broke even one of the commandments, I'm sure, decided to steal the worst vehicle possible to do anything quickly. Can you imagine what we're getting? A recreational paddle boat. So my grandfather jumps in this recreational paddle boat, and he is pedaling furiously, and he is going one-eighth of a mile per hour <laughs> out to the middle of the lake, and he gets there right to where the sailboat is, and there's like this much of it sticking up, and he, and he grabs it, and he rescues it, and he brings it back in, and it was glorious. It was saved. Uh, that was the last voyage of our sailboat. It never saw uh, the sea again. Why am I telling you this story? I told that story at my grandfather's funeral. And the reaction was about the same as y'all just had. You laughed. It's a great story. It's a hilarious story. It was one of the funniest moments of my entire life, watching my dignified Presbyterian elder grandfather paddle boat across a lake to rescue a sailboat that he made that was sinking. It was pretty funny. Friends, death is not funny. Death is not good. In fact, the Bible tells us unambiguously that death is ugly and death is evil. And in fact, death is our final enemy. But because of this story in Matthew 28, because Christ has been risen from the dead, friends, death is defeated. Which means Christians can laugh sometimes at funerals.
That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 mocks death. Uh, the kids might say, it, I'll say in my day, they probably don't say this anymore, Paul is talking smath, smath. <laughs> he is talking smack to death. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because of the resurrection, death has been undone. Death is dead, love has won, like we sang earlier this morning. But the story doesn't end there. Verse 16 tells us that the disciples go ahead to Galilee to meet the resurrected Christ. And verse 17 says, when they see him, some worship, but some doubt. It's amazing to me that Jesus is not worried about the doubt. Jesus is not threatened in this passage by the fact that some doubt what is apparently happening. Jesus always invites us to bring to him our worship and our doubts. But having seen his disciples, having seen those who are gathered there to be with him, in verse 18, Jesus begins what the church now calls the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is supposed to answer the question, Christ has been raised from the dead, now what? What are we supposed to do now? So I want to reflect on this commission that Jesus gives to his disciples. It begins in verse 18 when he says, All authority on, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's stop there. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Friends, that is a breathtaking claim. All authority has been given to Jesus. Not some authority, not most authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. What Paul is saying there is that Jesus was enthroned in heaven and coronated as the rightful king of the universe by his resurrection. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And what that means is Jesus is ruling and reigning over heaven and earth now, this morning, today. Jesus is king. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. And friends, let me assure you, King Jesus is doing just fine. King Jesus is not worried about the world. King Jesus is not anxious over how things are going. King Jesus is doing just fine. And if we are going to be the people of a risen and reigning king, we too must learn not to be anxious over the fate of the world. We live in a world with a 24-hour news cycle and an even faster cycle on social media that is commenting on what is happening. 
And at least part of what this passage teaches us is we must learn not to ride the waves of that cycle. We must learn that things like politics are not ultimate. They are not the truest thing because Jesus is ruling and reigning over the creation. His kingdom is more true than any earthly kingdom. All of the politics that stress us out are not ultimate and won't ultimately matter in light of Christ our King. Friends, that's just where the Great Commission begins. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And in verses 19 and 20, Jesus continues with this commission and he says, Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. This is where we usually focus when we think about the Great Commission. We think about going and making disciples in other places. But it's important for us to note something. Before we are commanded to go, we are reminded that we have received the Great Commission ourselves. I'm not great at measuring distances on Google Earth, but Jesus gave this commission to his church 2,000 years ago, 5,928 miles away from Warrington, Virginia, give or take five miles. It's a long way away. At the time that Jesus was giving this commandment, a lot of our ancestors were in England and Scotland putting on blue paint to protect themselves from Roman spears. It didn't work. Friends, we are all recipients of the Great Commission first. And it's important to note something else. And that is this. Who does Jesus give the Great Commission to? Note that you have the gathered group of disciples here. Uh, you can't see this in the English, but in the Greek you have plural verbs, which means they're all addressed to y'all, not you as individuals. Jesus gives the Great Commission to his church. And friends, that makes so much sense in light of the entire story of the Bible. Because this is what God has always been doing. God redeems a people, he blesses them, and then he brings them alongside himself in his mission to fill the earth with his glory. This is the same purpose for which he created. This is all the way back in Genesis 1. He creates Adam and Eve and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Because they bear his image, they are filling the earth with his glory and his goodness. Sin doesn't change that mission. It just means that there must be redemption before the mission can continue. And that's what God is doing here. That's what Jesus is commanding here. We are being reminded, as one theologian puts it, that God does not have a mission for his people. He has a people for his mission. 
In other words, God doesn't save a group of people and then figure out he needs to give them something to keep them busy. God has a purpose to fill the earth with his goodness and his glory, and he gathers a people to do that. And friends, what that means is it is the task of the church to bear witness to the salvation and the lordship of Christ wherever we are and wherever we go. We are all part of God's mission as we live as those who have been redeemed by grace and as we follow King Jesus. So the Great Commission certainly includes the sending of missionaries. But what I want you to see is that the Great Commission is deeper even than that. It's not just about sending missionaries to faraway lands. In an image-obsessed world, teaching those to observe all that Christ has commanded means that things like repenting and seeking to live lives of holiness and turning away from sin, that is mission. That's what it looks like for us to bear witness to the lordship of Christ in our own lives. In a world that is obsessed with comfort, following Jesus into suffering and moving towards those who hurt is mission. That is what it means to bear witness to the lordship of Christ who himself moves into suffering in the world. In a convenience-obsessed world, Forming relationships with people, being present with people, being inconvenienced by people, and noticing people is mission. Because that's how Jesus treats people. In a world consumed with political anxiety, being calm and confident that Jesus is reigning is mission, is how we bear witness to his kingship in the world. All of those things bear witness to Christ, which is the task of the church until he returns. But there's one last clause here in the Great Commission. At the end of verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, Jesus is always with his people. He is always with us as we are participating with him and his mission to fill the earth with his glory. Jesus is always there, supporting and guiding and correcting and empowering and encouraging us. And at least part of what this means is that we don't have to fear anything. And so friends, as we conclude this morning, And as we conclude this series in the book of Matthew, I want to simply note that where we end is the same place where we began. The book of Matthew opens with the announcement of a child who would be known as Emmanuel, God with us. And this child would save God's people from sin and death. And Matthew's gospel ends with that child, now a man, who is triumphant over sin and death and Satan and hell, and he is reigning over heaven and earth with all authority. And his last 
promise to his people is that he is with us always. We are never alone because he is Emmanuel always. Death is dead. Love has won. Christ has conquered. He is with us always. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for a gospel too glorious to even imagine. That though we rebelled against you, you sent Christ to take on a human nature, to live a life we couldn't live, to die a death we couldn't die, and to rise in triumph over sin and death and hell so that we sinners could be regarded as beloved children, not just in this life, but for eternity. Father, let the resurrection this morning fill us with joy. Let the resurrection this morning anchor us in the truth of your work in the world. Let it remind us that death is not the truest thing. And let it give us strength and power to live and bear witness to your goodness and your grace in the world. Father, even now as we come to the table, we pray that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us in grace to anchor us in your gospel and to strengthen us to live alongside you in your mission to fill the earth with your glory. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.